Shalom, and welcome to another Q&A broadcast here at Lion and Lamb Ministries. We have a special guest with us today. Joining me is my good friend and a wonderful teacher in his own right, Chris Knight. And uh, we're going to be tackling some of our questions for this week. Um, we're going to have a wonderful, great time. He and I, we've had a couple of times on camera together. Yeah. And uh, we're just going to do our best to minister to the brethren, encourage you, answer some of your questions, and uh, pray that it is uh, edifying to you in your faith. So let me start with a word of prayer, and then we will get underway. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this day, and we thank you, Lord, for the brethren who have sent in their questions, who are a part of this ministry, our community, and of the greater body of Messiah. And Father, I pray that your words would be spoken here today at this table. And Father, I pray that you would um, use us as vessels fit for your use and uh, minister to the brethren, Lord. And we pray your name be glorified in all things. And it's not any man that is glorified, but you and you alone. So, Father, we pray that we would continue to lead us with your Holy Spirit and guide us in everything we do here at this ministry. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Chris, you want to go ahead and yeah. shoot your first question, and then we'll, uh, we'll kind of tackle these together. Yeah, we've got quite a few uh, great questions today. Our first question is from Rosalind, or Rosalind. And this is the question. I have a question regarding tzitzit. Can women wear them, or are they only for men? All right. The tzitzit, or tzitziot in the plural, uh, that's the commandment that comes from Numbers chapter 15 at the end of the chapter. Uh, we'll go ahead and read that, and then we'll get into it. Uh, again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments, throughout their generations, and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners, and you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So we have the commandment regarding taking the tassels of your garments, tying a thread of blue in there. And it says specifically, it says the children of Israel. It doesn't say the sons of Israel. So I, whenever I see that in the scripture, it tends to make me think that it's men, women, even children. Any, anybody who's a part of the family of God is to do this uh, commandment. And so I don't see a distinction within the scripture in the context of that there's a restriction for women or men. Um, however, there's times that we want to make sure that we don't have a cross between we don't men, want men to look like women and, and women to usurp men. And so uh, in, the, in the form of like, say, a talit or uh, other garments, if there's a garment designed for a man, I would encourage that a woman not wear that or if there's a garment designed for a woman. Um, and so when it comes to these corners of the garments, there's obviously a lot of question about what the corners are. What have you seen in your yeah. kind of walk as far as the corners, the seat seats, belt loops? What, what, what do you think about yeah, that? Well, most, most people would probably ask this question because they see Judaism, right? And you look at Judaism and uh, within most circles of Judaism, you don't see women wearing seat seat. Um, as, as far as the four corners, you know, uh, for a long period of time in history, it was the tallit that people wore once uh, four-cornered garments went out of fashion. People started wearing pants and shirts and those sorts of things. And uh, a lot of uh, Jews, however, will wear the tallit katan. They'll have an undershirt that still has the four corners, uh, you know, so that 
within that regard, it's considered halakhically kosher, and, and they'll wear the seat seat. You'll see them kind of coming up out of the pants with their undershirts. Um, uh, most people will think that because in Judaism, modern-day Judaism, women don't wear seat seat, that that's how it's always been, or that's how they agree. But if you actually go back to some of the debates of the early authors of, of the uh, Mishnah and the Talmud, you'll notice that they, w- they were very split on this issue, and there are several rabbis throughout history who have uh, actually taken... Uh, advocated for women uh, wearing that as well. I think, it, I think maybe it comes down to a, a personal decision of the home, true, as well as the community. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I would caution people to not get hung up on what's the corners of the garments yeah. when you hold up a <laughs> pair of pants. Well, it's got to be right on the side, so that's the corners or the belt loops and things like that. People get caught up on the corners and where to tie them and whether the talit katan. And I mean, I don't know if I've ever heard a, a talit katan or an undergarment like a katan for a female. Have, has you ever seen anything like that? No, I've seen people just kind of clip them on skirts and things like that, or they have the nice uh, sure. uh, micro talit that clips on your belt. Um, the key to the whole commandment, though, is what's it for, what's its purpose. It's so that we look upon that tassel and remember the commandments of God. Okay. At that point, if we're all uh, instructed to keep the commandments of God, there's commandments for women, there's commandments for children, there's commandments for men, and that these tassels were to be for our eyes to follow off. You see, you see walking some, somebody walking by and you're like, oh, what's that dangling off of his, yeah. uh, off of his pants there? You know, that's what, that sort of uh, interaction is what it's intended to do. Yeah. And so uh, for that, in that case, man, anytime you can see that tassel would be good, whether it's on a female, whether it's on a child, whether it's on a male, whether it's on a tally, a tally katan, on a micro tally, on the, on the, the cuffs of your pants, you know, sleeves of your shirt, Whatever it might be, now I, I wouldn't go too crazy with it and you know make it you know, make a joke out of it, but it's certainly the intent of the commandment is to look upon those things and remember the commandments. And man, if if a mom is teaching her children and fathers at work or tilling the ground, whatever, and she has them on, then the kids might one day walk up to her and say, "Hey, what's that?" And then that's their teachable moment to teach them about the commandments of the Lord and that that's what the task is for. So, man, I I can't understand any reason why you'd put a restriction on, well, you can't wear them this way, you can wear them this way, you have to tie them this way. We tend to get caught up on form instead of function. Sure. And we get in a lot of trouble with that, and Yeshua addresses that quite a bit. And, yeah, we have to remember the heart and the purpose that God gave behind it. He's very specific on the things he chooses to be, mm-hmm. and sometimes he's a little bit more ambiguous, in it, and I don't think that's for no reason. So, so I, I mean, in my mind, the, the, the point is that, you know, if you walk up to a stranger or, or somebody and they see and they're like, what's the deal with the strings hanging off your, off your belt loops? That's your moment. That's your moment to minister, to speak, to teach about the commandments of the Lord. And then if, they're, if they are a Christian, man, you take them right here to the Holy Bible that they probably have in their car or their back pocket by chance and say, hey, it's right there. This is what we do. So um, that's, I mean, we're kind of going beyond just answering the question, but we're taking the opportunity to talk about the blue, what it means, what it represents, and, and how we're, that when it comes to that commandment, what's the purpose, what's the function, not necessarily form, but let's, uh, let's all continue to keep the commandments of the Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. We have another question. This question comes from Kelly and Vicky. The question is this. You call Shavuot the day of proclamation. Can you tell me where you get this? Is it directly from scripture or from tradition? If from scripture, what is the passage? 
Well, when we talk about the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, which we just got done with uh, just a little while ago, we had a conference here in Norman, Oklahoma with Lion and Land Ministries, and we call it by theme, we call it Shavuot, the Day of Proclamation. Now, why do we say it? Why do we call it? That's obviously the question. Well, if you take you to Leviticus chapter 23, this is the commandments of all of the feasts, the appointed times of the Lord, how to keep Sabbath, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and also the Feast of Weeks. So if we go and we read the commandment for the Feast of Weeks, then we can kind of find, you know, why maybe there's a difference. Why do we use this word proclamation for the Feast of Weeks? Um, So Leviticus chapter 23, starting at verse 15. Uh, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, that's the first fruits that you would wave sheaves in that, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath that you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah, and they shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord, and you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull, two rams. They shall be as burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, and an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one of the kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs in the first year of a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering um, before the Lord with two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. You shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work in it. It shall be a statute forever in your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of the land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of the field. When you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. That is the specific commandment regarding the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot. Um, You notice in that one commandment where it says about having a holy convocation, it is a high Sabbath. There's other holy convocations throughout the year associated with tabernacles and with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Day of Atonement, Feast of Trumpets, of course. But this is the only one where it does give that language. You shall proclaim that same day as a holy convocation. And so there is a list of things that we are to do on the Feast of Shavuot. Our good friend Daniel Musson has a good teaching on this where he breaks down the seven things we're required to do. Um, And one of those things is to make a proclamation. And so at, at various times in our walks, we make proclamations of faith, or, and, but this is a time in which, an appointed time of the Lord, where he actually commands us to do so. Yeah, I mean, and you look at the day, right, uh, Shavuot celebrates the events that occurred on Mount Sinai when God gave his Torah, and that was a huge proclamation, one that has, you know, never happened before or since, right. the like, and then you fast forward to Acts chapter 2, the other famous Shavuot, you know, Pentecost event, and what do we have but the, the disciples who are gathered together being empowered by the Holy Spirit and making a proclamation of Yeshua, speaking. Yeah, in, yeah. Yeah, and 3,000 people decide to make a proclamation of faith in Messiah and, you know, come to the walk, so uh, it seems to be a theme that's recurring. Yeah. Uh, scripture doesn't call it necessarily the day of proclamation, but that's definitely a major theme surrounding 
it's a it's a one day feast, and we're commanded to proclaim. And so, really, when it starts here at the ministry, I mean, we started by calling it the Day of Proclamation, kind of as a theme, a theme for the event. Whenever we'd get together for the Feast of Weeks, you know, we would say, "Join us for Shavuot, the Day of Proclamation." As we changed the theme year in and year out for Sukkot, um, Shavuot, we kind of like kind of liked that theme and going with it, and kind of made a, a unique distinction. And so, that term, Day of Proclamation, isn't necessarily verbatim from Scripture, but it's the general theme of the Feast of Weeks. Um, and so we had a wonderful Feast of Shavuot. Did you have a good time there as well? Oh, it was great, yeah. Yeah, Amazing. conference uh, center in Norman. And so um, definitely it is a holy convocation. It's, in fact, we proclaim that it's a holy convocation. So come join the people together. If you can make it out. I'm trying to proclaim that as best I can. Um, come join the people together. Well, it is a holy convocation for the Feast of Weeks. Wherever you may be, you can join us, join fellow brethren, and have a holy convocation on the day of proclamation. Amen. Amen. Uh, we have another question. It's anonymous. Okay. And the question is this. Sir, may I know if women need to wear a head covering as a believer of Yeshua? I was a Muslim and now believe in Yeshua, and I also follow Torah. Your suggestions will be a great answer for me. Well, when it comes to the head covering for women, we can go to a passage of Scripture that talks about head coverings. Uh, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, and so we can read this Scripture and see what, uh, what the Apostles here says about head coverings and then, uh, and then interpret. And obviously, and whenever we do read from the, the letters, like the letters to the Corinthians, there's a lot of context to be had about yeah. you know, what's, what was going on with them, what, what are we talking about here. But let's read this and then see if we can draw uh, some things out of this. So um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, starting at verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, or Messiah. The head of every woman is man. The head of Messiah is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as it is her head were as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is a man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For a woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if someone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God." So what we have here is we have an interesting context here of talking about the relationship between man, woman, and whether one who is subordinate to another, man being subordinate to God, that having his head covered or uncovered, does it honor or dishonor that those who are 
ahead of them or above them. The question also can be raised, is the covering of one's head, is it simply their hair? Or is it some other form of covering, like a head cover for a woman, it's a scarf. For a man, it might be a yarmulke or some other kind of hat. Uh, and so you have a lot of things to discuss here. Um, have you always seen it as, when you read that, does that have to do with an actual like covering of one's head, or does the hair kind of become part of that covering? Well, I think, I think as you've said, um, you know, when we read letters like this, Paul is in a certain period of time addressing a certain group of people right. who have certain issues that they've you know, obviously reached out to him or word has come to him, and so he's writing to address those things. And I uh, by no means uh, am an expert or have studied necessarily the culture around the Corinthians, but I know several people have, uh, including our good friend Rico Cortez, and you know, they bring out that there are certain things you know that are underlying here within Roman culture that a head covering represents and doesn't represent that um, don't necessarily appear with us yeah. uh, but it, it's you know it's it's the, the, the point the, the key to this passage of scripture though here is right there starting at verse 13 judge among yourselves is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? That's speaking directly into the context of from one group to one fellowship to one cultural belief. And if you stand up and you say, uh, or a leader of a, of a community, a fellowship, congregation, whatever it is, and if he stands up and says, no, there's nothing wrong with a woman praying if her head's uncovered, if, whether that be the hair or a head covering or that that has to do with, you know, that it's, that if it's considered in modern culture to be shameful that a woman has her head shaved, obviously in today's society, um, for hairstyles are completely different than they were before, while at the same time, somebody is not, is missing their hair, I mean, we generally look and they could be you know, under a treatment, medical treatment, and, and different things like that. And so yeah. in today's culture, there, we, which is not an honor and shame culture, which is one of the things that Rico also teaches about, that you know, our culture is dramatically different from the past, that um, you, know, you see this, and we don't have that necessary, that look of shame, that if a wife has her head uncovered, or if a wife even has her hair shaved, that we don't look at that as a dishonor to the husband who yeah. she's with. But in ancient times, that's exactly how that would reflect, that that would reflect upon that authority. And then a man, if you're wearing your hair or your appearance to you know, be something that's different or abnormal or, or against cultural contexts or appropriateness, then you at that point are dishonoring to your covering and your authority, which is God himself. Yeah, you make a great point. This is really something that's about community. We look in the Torah, and there's there's nothing about a, a woman having to cover her head, and a man is not allowed to cover her head. And Paul never claims anywhere in his letters to be making blanket statements for the entire community of he, believers. He clears it up at the end. He writes to specific communities yeah. who are dealing with issues, and, and he guides the leadership as such. Mm -hmm. And so, so many of these things do come down to an issue of uh, community, of local authority, local leadership local community. Uh, Paul in other places talks about being all things to all men. You know, to the Jew I was a Jew, to the Greek I was a Greek. And, and this could even tie back into the Tzitzit question we, we were talking about earlier. Um, we want to be honoring to the community, to the leadership of the community that we're at, mm -hmm. and uh, that, that could be different depending. But I don't think Paul here is making a blanket statement on all believers 
uh, he's definitely not coming up with new commandments here. Now, what I definitely want to do is go back to our original question here where we have an unnamed who said, and then it says, um, I want to know if women need to wear coverings as a believer in Yeshua. I was a Muslim and now believe in Yeshua and also follow Torah. So we actually don't know if this is a male asking the question or a female asking the question. Um, And so what I would say is this is, first of all, coming out of being Muslim, there's a lot of culture. There's a lot of context there. It depends on where the community you still find yourself in. Um, What's your relationship with your spouse, be male or female, because we we don't have the detail here. And that I would certainly look to whoever is your authority, or if you're in authority over someone else, that you then, you learn those rules, those guidelines for that house. If somebody came out of Middle Eastern culture, and the culture is, is that, you know, the wife, to be respectful to her husband, is to have her head covered, whether it be with a scarf or whether it be to ensure she always has long hair, that that's a, that's a cultural norm that you respect the authority that's before you right there. So if you're a wife and your husband asks you know, and, and, and requests that you have your head covered out of respect for him, that you honor that request, whether that be by commandment, cultural context, that kind of thing. And then for uh, a woman asking the question and saying, well, I'm not Muslim now, which that we had to have our head covered, and now I'm a part of this religion, and do I have to have my head covered? And it's say, again, when we look at the scripture here, as a believer in Yeshua, where we kind of look to the words of Paul for some clarification on some of these things. Again, look at the community you're in, the authority that is over you, and you can ask that question and say, is it right for me to have my head covered or is it wrong for me to have it uncovered? Ask the question and then respect the authority within the cultural norms of those things because it's all a matter of respect. It's respect for those who are above us. We're all under God. And so God, in his infinite wisdom creation, created us. We all have hair on our head. We all are made in the handed after the image of God or after the image of Adam. Yeah. However you want to talk, that's a discussion for another day. But he created us to look a certain way out of respect and because we're a reflection of him. And so that's why, and this ties back into... Previous questions we've answered on Q&A broadcast many times over about tattoos Mm -hmm. and any other time that you would mark your body or distinguish yourself from being the very creation of God. That he created us to be in his image, to to be a reflection of him, and that we don't want to change that or dishonor that. And so if God has it be that you lose your hair and that you're now a bald man... (laughs) That, you know, that's almost like God has basically said, this is how you're going to respect me and honor me because you're going to look this way. Um, Or, you know, we always want to look to our authority and ask, are we doing what we're doing to be respectful and honoring to that authority? Or are we doing something for our own selfish gain? We want to look a certain way. We want to fit into a certain group or demographic of people. Um, We want to always maintain that healthy respect for the authority that is before us. Amen. That's a great answer. Very good. We have another question, and uh, this question is from Nancy, and it reads uh, like this. If the temple were to be rebuilt before the return of Messiah, wouldn't those who follow Torah, the men, be required to be at the feast, uh, the three pilgrimage feasts of the Lord in Jerusalem? So I am thinking again, only the altar will be rebuilt because of this? Thank you for your answer. Well, she's referring to, like you said, the three pilgrimage feasts, which are Pesach, Shavuot, which we just talked about as well, 
and the Feast of Sukkot. Yep. That people in, in ancient times in Jerusalem, the commandment was to go and appear before the Lord at those three times of the year. Now, I imagine this probably became a very complicated thing as time as people lived further away. They would have to yeah. work to then travel and, and do these things. They'd go to Sukkot. They'd set up temporary dwellings then um, for an eight-day feast. And so this would be extremely hard if you lived more than a day or two days away from Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, and so this is, I mean, there's a huge cultural discussion as far as how that all worked out. And we think that actually that tied to the separation of the two kingdoms of Israel, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, and that this whole commandment to appear before the Lord. Well, regardless of all of that, you know, here we are in the diaspora, scattered into the nations. We all have a heart to keep the commandments to the best of our ability. And at this point in time, where we live practically on the complete opposite side of the world from where Jerusalem is, here we are in Oklahoma, that it would be extremely difficult to try to make a three-time-a-year trek back to Jerusalem. I would imagine that not everyone would be able to pull that off. Yeah, unless you got an American Express card in your pocket, and you're, you're, not, you're not pulling that off, and then you will take care of the debt later. But um, So obviously, where we are today... Very difficult to keep this commandment to, to this extent. Now, we always are trying to do it with our heart. We're trying to do it with the best of our ability, with a faith. When it comes to going to Sukkot, we, we believe that we, if we leave our homes, though we're not in Jerusalem, leaving our homes is sometimes the best we can do for the Feast of Sukkot or some of those pilgrimage yeah. feasts um, to go and, and do those things. Now, the question here, though, is referred to like end times. If the temple is set up, then if the if the full temple service is all in place with the Levitical priesthood, would we then be more inclined to make that trek to Jerusalem as opposed to there simply being an altar set up? Because we've talked in end times hmm. here with Lion and Lamb Ministries many times that we're looking for an altar, a future altar to be set up so the Jews can worship the Lord in that way in Jerusalem. And that if that altar is set up, would that then change the narrative for people to say, you know what, I've got to get to Jerusalem this year for the pilgrimage feast? Because there's now a system of priesthood, there's now a, a system of sacrifices back in place to where when it says here in the scripture where it says, bring a young bull, bring a goat, bring a turtle dove, whatever it is, we now have the system in place to keep those commandments even better. I've been desiring to do it with my own heart, but now there's a system in place. Hmm. So is the narrative different if there's just an altar or is the narrative different if there's the entire service and the rebuilding of a, of a third temple? Uh, that, that's a phenomenal question and I don't know necessarily if, if I could speak to the difference between the altar and the temple in regards to the pilgrimage expectation. Where would your but heart when, be? Actually, I yeah. think a good way when you go, Well, when you go through the Torah and you're looking at the commandments regarding the feasts or just appearing before the temple in general, there are several provisions when you're going through the Torah of those who cannot make the trek and how they are to you know, behave in that nature and, right. and how there, there's provisions for them within their own city, within their own area to, to do so. And, and I also find comfort in the words of Yeshua you know, when he stumbles upon the uh, Samaritan woman. Mm -hmm. And they're having this little talk. And as we know, the, the Jewish people at the time and the Samaritans were butting heads about everything, one of which being where do you go to worship? Do you go to the temple in Jerusalem or do you go to Mount Gerizim? You know, where do you go? Uh, and she mentions that. You know, she says, well, your fathers go to Jerusalem and, you know, we go to Mount Gerizim. And um, he says, well, let me tell you, there's going to come a time where we will neither worship there nor here, but, you know, we're going to worship in spirit and truth. And, and so I, I find some comfort in that. Maybe that's where we are today. Yeshua knowing, you know, yeah, there's going to come a time where, you know what, you're not going to be able to go to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. 
you're not going to be able to make the trek. But that doesn't mean you're not still meeting with God or appearing before God. That doesn't mean the Spirit of God still isn't within the camp and with you that, that, during that, your time of feast. That sounds to me more like a prophecy of like yeah. of soon coming diaspora years after the coming of Yeshua and not necessarily some sort of end time prophecy. Correct. It, but I would encourage people in that regard to think just because there is no you know, temple set up that I am any less meeting with God during my feast because he is well and able to meet with you in the diaspora. In fact, uh, many of the greatest acts of God we have in the Tanakh happened at a time of exile. You know, and uh, so is this a requirement when, when it gets reestablished? There are people who just by nature are not going to be able to make that trek should that happen. True. But I think the Torah makes provision for that. I think God has certain... Uh, Mm-hmm. you know, recognition for, for those who are not able to make such a journey. And since we're on the subject and we're talking about the rebuilding of a physical third temple and setting up of an altar service, and this is not to say that what Yeshua did replaced the commandments of old. It's, we, we don't talk about that in this ministry. But at the same time, we are we not the temple of God ourselves? Is not the Son of Man oh, the yeah, temple yeah. of God? And so when you, so like you said, we'll do this in spirit, that it's not about the physical location, but we go and appear before the Lord in the temple, the sacrificial system, the service, the one established in here, not one of physical, but one of spiritual and not a circumcision of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart. And that don't you know that we are the temple of God? Isn't that what the, the, the letters say so many times? So that in that case, when you and when he does say that, he says that in reference to the community as a whole, not as individuals. So, you know, uh, wherever you're at, you know, yeah. And so when be a says, community. And so, man, if somebody says like it's like, well, I can't make it to Jerusalem, even though there's a third temple been built. However, I read the scripture and it says the uh, the temple has been built here in this place, and I'm with a community of like-minded brethren who stand here, we see the appointed times, and we want to keep the appointed times, and we want to spiritually appear before the temple of God that he has established within us, leading us with his Holy Spirit, filled us with his glory, and, and all of these things. Man, I, I can't say that that's a transgression of the commandment. Is it's, at that point, it's an interpretation, or it's a spiritual function of the commandment rather than a physical application. Yeah. So, you know, that that's what I would have to say about that when it comes to the pilgrimage feasts, appearing before the Lord. And so when we look to future events and look for the establishment of another altar or, uh, praise the Lord, a, a third temple with, a, with, a, with the complete uh, you know, system in place, then, man, it's going to be interesting to see the hearts of the people and their desires to make that trek, make that journey and, and move to Israel so that they can then keep those commandments better. Um, you know, however that is, it's, it's going to be as the Lord moves upon your heart to keep that commandment whether you can, are physically able to or you simply have to spiritually do it in your own hearts and your own minds and reconcile that with your own personal spirit. And we can take comfort in this. There's a lot of prophecy that talks about in the kingdom of God it will be possible for all of us to worship together as one, to be before our king and, and whatnot. So regardless of what happens in this time, we know that in the kingdom and the world to come, that opportunity is available. Amen. Looking forward to that time. We have another question uh, from Stan, and the question is this. I wanted to ask who the restrainer is in Revelation pertaining to the Antichrist. Interesting. Well, the restrainer, quote-unquote, 
uh, is something that has been applied to uh, something that's in the uh, writings and in, in the New Testament here when we say this, that there's this person or this thing that is called the restrainer. It comes directly from, actually from 2 Thessalonians uh, that talks about, um, let me go ahead and read here, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And he, this is um, Paul talking to the uh, Thessalonians, and this is the second letter that he sent to them. And now that you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the works of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So what we have here is we're talking about um, future great tribulation, prophetic prophecies, the beast, the antichrist here. And so we have this interesting reference to that which is restraining. And this is kind of the only place in scripture where this is actually mentioned. Yeah. Now, a lot of people try to figure out how does this tie to the beast revealed in Revelation, uh, the, the woman who is likened unto Israel uh, there in Revelation chapters 12 and 13. There's a lot of theories about this. We don't know. We don't know what, truly what the restrainer is. Um, so we can speak to what some of the theories have been. Um, I know you've heard the one theory that if the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. Uh, that, th yeah, and I don't know, you know, I'm not taking a stance on anything, but that seems to be the popular one, sure. is it's the Holy Spirit. I've also heard great arguments saying it's the adversary, which those seem to be completely opposed. Uh, and, and I know that you even mentioned that many teach it could be an archangel or, or something of that nature. And it's, uh, so it, it's one of those passages that's ambiguous and has many yeah. kind of Whatever fronts it is, to it. It's, what it appears is there's something that is restraining or something or someone that is restraining lawlessness to come forth. There's a mystery of lawlessness already at work, according to the scripture, and that when the restrainer is removed or taken out of the way, then the beast is revealed. But at that point in time, so if we're looking to some practical application of things we're looking forward to. Um, oh, I'm not really looking forward to them, but when they, when they happen and they're signs of the return of the Lord, that the Antichrist is revealed, revealed to the world that this is the beast. This is the Antichrist that's spoken of in the book of Revelation and in all the scriptures. That this restrainer is removed out of the way and suddenly the beast is revealed. So what could that be? If there is somebody, a uh, world leader in the world today, that is waiting to, to, to be revealed as the man of lawlessness, then what is the thing that's restraining him from being revealed that is still in place? And that's where we say, could be the Holy Spirit. Could be the Spirit of the Lord uh, that, 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 is, that is holding those things in place, moving amongst the people, and preventing that revelation to take place. Some, uh, I even heard it said or read that they believe even the governmental system, the physical governing systems of the world that promote law and order and have that, that, that teach moral, just moral practices and principles, that there is, yes, there's a lot of lawlessness in the world today. There's a lot of iniquity. However, in the first world, we have government and governing systems that prevent lawlessness. 
And so if those things, what if those things are the restrainer, quote unquote, that then the fall of governmental systems would fall, we would lose all law and order for which then the man of lawlessness to stoop in and, and he, now we have the great tribulation as led by the Antichrist who is the man of lawlessness. And so the, some even speculated that that is what the restrainer is. And then even if you go into deeper studies or if you want to try and personify the restrainer, so to speak, um, I saw one message where it talks about this. If you go to Revelation 13, it talks about the dragon gives power to the anti-Messiah. And that it also says, however, before that in Revelation 12, it says that Michael, the archangel, Michael being the defender of Israel, um, for lack of a better, in simple terms, um, that he fights the dragon, that he prevents, and so if he's, he fights the thing that gives the anti-Messiah power is being fought by Michael the Archangel. If Michael the Archangel suddenly stops fighting that thing that gives power to the anti-Messiah, then, then the dragon gives its power to the anti-Messiah and he then becomes revealed. So some have related those two passages of scripture connecting the restrainer to Michael the Archangel that maybe that is the great restrainer keeping the revelation of the beast. Again, we don't know. There's certainly a lot of people who speculate on who the anti-Messiah is, but there is, but there is no definitive proof. Now, when the anti-Messiah appears and is revealed, I imagine it's going to be pretty clear yeah. <laughs> to those that have read their scriptures and, and seen all of those things unfold. Um, and then that, and whatever that is, at that point, you might, well, we might look back at prophecy and say, what was the restrainer? What has now been removed yeah. so that he has now come to power? Yeah, a, a lot of prophecy in the scriptures is very clear in hindsight. <laughs> I think it's important <laughs> to remember. Actually, I've heard this phrase. It's fantastic. I love this phrase. Prophecy best describes something after it has happened. Correct, yeah. And uh, it's important to remember when we approach topics like this, there are things that are outside of our control, and there are things that are inside of our control. Our tendency is to focus on God's job and the things that God is in control of and what he's taking care of instead of the simple tasks mm -hmm. that he has given us. True. So I would encourage anyone who you know, is looking into this and studying this uh, not to get hung up on God's side of the deal, but to remember that he has given us an end of the deal. Yeah. And we're reminded, you know, blessed are those who when their master returns, he finds them doing the work he's given them. Correct. And so in all things, uh, what's more important about worrying who the man of lawlessness or who's restraining, let us not ourselves become people of lawlessness. Let us ourselves remain you know, vigilant, and, uh, vigilant and, and diligent in the work that uh, the Messiah has given us to do mm -hmm. until that day comes. So many of us look at you know, the government and the way the world is today, and we sit there and we're like, man, if we could just... If God could just give us a different president or a different leader or, or change this government here, and it's like, man, all of those things are, are well beyond our, cap our individual capabilities to do. Yeah. And so we have to put our trust in the Lord, that the Lord will, and it's the Lord's job to raise up kings and tear, raise up nations and tear down nations, and, and he has a history of doing that. And so for us to think like that we know best of what the Lord's going to do when it comes to that job, you know, then our focus should not be on that. So whoever the restrainer is, we, this appear, uh, apparently is something that is under God's control, God's command, and that kind of thing. So when we see the man of lawlessness revealed, and we then can look back at the prophecy, well, what was the restrainer that was keeping him back? And then maybe we can answer this question definitively, knowing whether it's something spiritual, something physical in, in place that uh, prevented that revelation. And again, prophecy best describes something after it has happened. So when you're reading a prophecy, 
you know, you're like, we speculate how it's going to happen or what it is. Then after it happens, we had no clue. That's true. But uh, if, if I could mention real quick here, I know we're taking a while on this question, but uh, let's, let's not forget. Yes, great question. Let's not forget that when Messiah came the first time, the reason, in my opinion here, that the religious authority was not accepting of him was because they had already interpreted prophecy in such a narrow box and already said, no, we know that this is what's going to happen. This is how these are supposed to play out. And because they put God in that box, mm-hmm. um, they missed him when he did something that was beyond what they ever could have comprehended. Yeah. And so I, I think God gives us what to look out for, mm-hmm. what to be aware of, mm-hmm. but we have to hold that with an open hand and not put God in, in our understanding currently of what it may or may not do because that's when we sorely miss out on the bigger picture of what he's actually going to do. Correct. And so, I mean, while we're on the subject, you know, I'll take the opportunity to just share something personal here when it comes to prophecy. Somebody once prophesied over me a number of years ago or whatever. They, they came up to me at, at congregation and they, they, they basically said, I have a prophecy for you. And I was like, okay. And they said, in so many years, I can't remember, I think it was five years at the time, in five years you're going to be on TV. That was it. Like that was the, that was the extent of it, and so I could sit there and I could speculate. Okay, I'm going to be on TV, so either I'm going to go to college and learn journalism, and I'm going to be a news broadcast. I'm going to be in a news broadcast live, and something's going to happen in front of me, and I'm going to be a witness, and then I'll be on TV that way, or I'm going to be uh, cast as an extra in a TV show or something like that. <laughs> so five years later, you know, I kept that in mind, but obviously I don't act on that anything of that nature. So then five years later, as we're doing broadcasts for B'nai Shalom, congregation, teachings, that kind of thing, somebody comes up to me at the Feast of Sukkot and they, they came up, they were so excited to meet me and they say, we watch you on our TV every Friday night. And I remembered that prophecy. And so when, I, when the prophecy was given before it's happened, I speculate all the ways that that prophecy could be fulfilled. But however, in those, all those cases, I was flat wrong. Yeah. Because then when somebody comes back and then says, we watch you on TV, and people are going to be watching this Q&A broadcast on a television right now. And so um, it's perfectly described the event after it has happened, where somebody says, we watch you on TV. The guy back a long time ago said, you're going to be on TV. It's, so that's the way prophecy works. That's a personal story, anecdote of, of what's happened to me. And it really speaks to me every time that we go to look at these prophecies. We can speculate all until uh, the sky is, until till our faces are blue or whatever that phrase, that mixed metaphor is, that we can, until we're blue in the face, that we can speculate what the fulfillment is, but we're probably missing it. And when it does happen, we'll look back and we're like, amen and amen. Those words of that scripture and that prophecy are as true today as it ever could have been. Amen. Cool. All right. We have another question from Thomas. The question is this. When does God consider us righteous? God, not man. How or when do we know that we are righteous in his eyes? Well, the, 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 I would ask first the question, are we righteous? Do we have any righteousness to commend ourselves? Um, and, you know, as the scripture goes, we know. I mean, we're sinners. We, we, but by righteous, and what, and the, the definition of righteous or righteousness is doing the right thing, acting appropriately. Um, and so do, does God consider us righteous? Well, I would say so if we do righteous things. I, w- I would pull from a couple examples, uh, one from 
you know, Abraham, one from Yeshua. When we look at Abraham, right, because he's the father of our faith and, and many things are patterned after him, Paul draws from him constantly in uh, using that example for our own faith as well as James. Uh, and we look at Abraham and, and what's the account, right? Genesis chapter 15, covenant is made. Uh, and it says uh, beforehand, right, he said, Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness, Correct. James brings out that later on that righteousness is manifested in his actions with, with the issue of the Akedah and offering Isaac sure. and whatnot. And then we go and we look at Yeshua and we see that, um, you know, the, the scripture reads, Paul tells us that uh, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God. Both have to do with glorifying God rather than ourselves. Both have to do with our faith and trust in God and following Him and knowing that He's the one who right, gets, gets the glory for that. Um, when the children of Israel were going into the Promised Land, we talk about, you know, we read Deuteronomy, and Moses is constantly emphasizing. Now remember, God is not bringing you here because you're so great and awesome. <laughs> because, you know, you're such a holy people and you keep the commandments so well. Uh, he says, to the contrary, you guys are actually pretty bad at this. But... It's because of the covenant he made with your forefathers. And so the, the glory is constantly redirected back to God. Yes. And righteousness, uh, if we're looking at those examples, I would submit, is not something we necessarily find on our own merit. It's something God gets the glory for when we completely put faith and trust in him. And naturally, when we do that, when we give ourselves to Him, when we become a new creation in that, mm-hmm. we then begin to see the fruits of that righteousness in our obedience later on. Just how Abraham believed God and it was righteousness, and then you saw that begin to uh, be lived out in his life. Correct. And when, when we give an account to the Lord, we want Him to look down on us and say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Mm-hmm. That's His, that, that him, being Him, this goes back to our authority lesson as well, and, and, and making sure we're always reverent to the authority above us. And, and God, and so he bestows upon us and he says, well done, your righteousness has done this or done this for you. And so the, going back to the question, it says, you know, does God consider us righteous? God, not man. And so man, you know, again, you, you don't want to look to man for him to, to affirm you that you've done something righteous. However, we do learn things about God from our interactions with man and whatever authority is in front of you in the same way that a father will commend their child for doing the righteous thing mm-hmm. in a situation where, you know, they were, this was going on, your parent, your kids, your friends were trying to lead you astray and do this and well done my son or child or daughter for doing the righteous thing and you, you bestow that upon them. And that it's in that same shadow, that relationship is a shadow of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Mm. And that it's like, and so are we perfect? No. <laughs> we mess up all the time. So do we have righteousness yeah. to commend us and all these things? Do we hang our hat on the fact that we did the right thing and we're a righteous people <laughs> and that suddenly that earns us something with the respect and authority that's in, before us? No, the, the, the authority yeah. comes from the Father. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, the parable that Yeshua tells uh, of two men going to, to the uh, temple, they're praying before God. Uh, one's a Pharisee, and one's a tax collector, a sinner. And, you know, the, the Pharisee's praying. He's like, thank you, God, for not making me like this heathen. You know, thank you for allowing me to be righteous and holy, right? Because a Pharisee is, is very strictly observant in all the commandments. I mean, they would be considered righteous in, in most people's eyes. Uh, and and the, the, the sinner, the tax collector, just says, God, 
have mercy on someone like me who has sinned and, and you see his heart as he's broken before God and comes before him and Yeshua says, that man went away justified mm-hmm. whereas the other did not. Right. And so, yeah, if we're talking about the difference between God and men, very different definitions of yeah. who is righteous and who is not. I, I've always heard it uh, said as well, it's not... Um, it's not your perfection, but your direction. It's kind of one of those cheesy Christianese things, right? It's not the fact that you're way down the path yeah. towards the goal if you're walking in the wrong direction versus someone who's just starting on the path and going the right way. You know, uh, yeah. That, that, that also reminds me of something else when it comes to you know seeking the righteousness and, and that kind of thing. You know, one of the in that example, one defined themselves by what they weren't and took and did not take the approach of humility. Correct. Yeah. While the other one took the approach of humility and didn't and, and didn't address his neighbor to his left or to his right and compare himself to yeah. one or the other to exalt himself above somebody else. So when it comes to just the nature of somebody doing a righteous act or acting righteously, um, acting in righteousness, uh, the example that somebody's going to be following is somebody who is that, that focus of humility, mm-hmm. not comparing themselves to somebody else, not exalting themselves above someone else. And that's, and, and that's the sort of the faith in the Lord that he will exalt you in the appropriate time and praying that he looks down with us and that we are righteous in his eyes. He, mm-hmm. the, the question asked, how do we know if we're righteous in his eyes? We, we don't know. We, we, we don't know. We're waiting for him to, to, to bestow the blessing upon us and say that your faith has been counted as righteousness. Yeah, I, th- I think we take comfort in knowing that it's not something that you have to have the perfectly graded scorecard, right? Yeah. It's something that is found in him. It's not something that we earn. And scripture emphasizes that point time and time again. And so, you know, like you said, you may not necessarily know, but I would take comfort knowing that God is the Father who's on your side wanting you to walk rather than the school teacher who's, you know, ready to write the F on your paper. Right. Uh, take comfort in that. Amen. Very good. All right. We, we have another question. Of course. From Jimmy. I'm very fond of this question. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> I <get a> little... <laughs> and the question is this. Will we be able to fly when we get our new glorified bodies? I sure. These are the theological questions. These are the questions we that we have got to answer. Okay, we, we will not. Our, our our faith in God is hinges. Jimmy's Jimmy's faith right here hinges on the fact of whether he can be he'll be able to fly in the kingdom with with a new body and a new creation. Fun question. Lightens the mood a little bit. Is his last name Olson by chance? Jimmy Olson was it was photographer for uh, 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 Superman? Superman. Yeah, there you go. Um, man, I sure hope so. This is the thing: is when we get in our new bodies, man, uh, who knows what they're going to be like. I mean, are they going to be uh, the what of our physical bodies are imperfections in this age that are going to be perfected in the new in the next age? If we believe we're going to have a body like the Messiah, he was able to eat a piece of fish and walk through a wall. So um, so would it be amazing? So are we going to have that superpower as well, the intangibility that we can eat a piece of fish and walk through a wall if we're going to have a new body the way the Messiah's body was? Mm-hmm. Um, he ascended into the clouds. Will we be able to do that on command, or is that only by command of the Lord that, he would, that he'd be allowed to do that? Uh, we can speculate until we're blue in the face on this one as well. I know in the, when I grew up in the Christian church, and you know, people would always speculate about heaven, 
Do we get infinite, you know, nachos and mansions? And can we do this? Yeah, and and we make it about this like almost video game kind of comic book. uh, But but what's let's let's look back at the point and the purpose, right? The point is the restoration. Yes. Back to paradise, back to the original creation. God created the heavens and the earth as a paradise, and man was placed there as his image bearers uh, to to have authority and dominion. Sin brings death. Disease, destruction, chaos, leprosy, yeah, scabs, and, and those are the things, things. Those are the things that are being removed. Sin, death, disease, uh, all the things that harm and bring death rather than life. So that's what's being taken away. So is our inability to combat gravity? Is that just a disease that we need to fight? <laughs> that that we, we should never be held down by this gravity thing. It's a terrible thing in this world that we have. I think we have to realize that the kingdom of God is not going to be a comic book video game. Of course. Uh, there's going to be a mission and a task, and man has a duty, and, and the kingdom of God has a purpose. And so what's being taken away from this this world are, are the effects of sin and what takes away from that mission. The key um, in this question is this. It, he says, will we be able to fly when we, when we get our new glorified bodies? Yeah. That's the point. We have new glorified bodies. Yeah. I, I mean, it's like what, what that body can now do is not the point. The point is now that the Lord has blessed us, Amen. given us eternal life, a new body to live, uh, for, for the, the old to suddenly have a, a, a new lease on life. They're young, running and leaping and enjoying those things. And we have, a, a, what an amazing time that's going to be that we're going to be sitting here. Yeah. You know, it, w- 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 I can picture it, that we're all standing around and we're all like realize we don't recognize ourselves just as the way Yeshua was not recognized when he came out of the grave yeah. with a new body so to speak would we are we even going to be able to recognize ourselves and I think we'll be able to recognize ourselves in spirit but I can just picture somebody going maybe this is going to be Jimmy here in the kingdom and he's going to be guys check out what I can do <laughs> like takes off with his new body and then we discover well I guess that answers that but the point though is not is not whether we're going to be able to. Do, I mean, we're going to be in the kingdom. We're going to be with the Lord. The Lord's going to be teaching us Torah. We're going to be keeping the commandments. We're going to be uh, believe it. We're finally going to be considered righteous in the things that we do. We have no idea the awesomeness of yeah. of what God has prepared and planned. At that point, that. being able to fly might be like the lamest thing that our new body can do. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> might not like flying, dude. Dude, I I don't I don't fly there because. I can just transport there or something like, like no one would choose to fly because there's great, even greater things than that. It's it's fun to look forward and hope. Of of course, are we as the image of God? The birds were made to fly, we were not. So maybe the creation of God, uh, that when we get to the kingdom, that maybe some of those same governing principles will be present there as well. That again, man, us being the image of God, we're not made with wings to fly. The birds are. So, you know, with everything in perspective here, we will see if those same governing principles in nature that God has created in his creation Usually will be present. Purpose we'll be, what he's doing. Exactly. Yeah. We'll be present in the kingdom. Um, yeah, if we can fly, then we're going to start creating conflict because who can fly faster? I can fly faster than you. So we don't want that in the kingdom. We don't want the conflict in the, uh, those yeah. things. We want to be with the Lord, praising the Lord. Amen. 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 Can't yeah. wait. Can't wait. It's a fun, fun one. If we have the blessing to be there. Yeah. Maybe yeah. found in the Lamb's Book of Life. Let's get there first. Amen. We have another question from uh, Richard. And the question is this. When God uh, brought the Gentiles into the fold 
and gave them the same salvation as the Jews, does that make us equal with the Jews in his eyes? Well, when God brought the Gentiles into the fold, again, this has gone back to so many questions as far as the distinction between Jew and Gentile, and that when uh, you know we, we look at Judaism and the Jews, they're God's chosen people. So then, when some somebody, a Gentile or someone of the nations, comes and conforms and joins with the Jews, receiving the salvation of the Jews, does that make them equal to the Jews? And there's now a there's now no longer a distinction between you know classes of citizens of the kingdom, basically. The thing that I always have uh, always caution anybody when you use the term Jews. You know, if you're talking about any time that you go back in Scripture, is like that Jews were, um, you know, of the tribe of Judah. Or, and, and, but again, modern day Jews or Judaism didn't come until later. So when you say a Jew today, it's different from what you, when you would have said a Jew um, uh, back in ancient times, you know, first century context, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think Scripture is pretty clear on this. Uh, for example, Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says, uh, You who were once afar off from the covenants of promise from the commonwealth of Israel have been brought near, uh, bought, uh, brought near by the blood of Messiah. As well as saying, you know, any of you who are Messiah are children of Abraham and Abraham's seed. Uh, as well as saying in another place, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. Uh, but then he also still gives that distinction saying, but these are still the people who have been granted the oracles of God and the covenants. So there's still a level of respect. It's, it's almost like saying, you know, which do you prefer, your son or your daughter? They're both equal in your eyes. You love them both. Sure. They both do different things and have different functions. Judaism still has this blessing of this heritage and the covenants and the scriptures and the prophets. Right. But as far as being equal in God's eyes, absolutely. Yes. He's, he's, not, he's not picking you know, favorites and, and, you know, by lineage. Because that's definitely not a pattern in, in the scripture either. There are certain prophecies that are tied to somebody who is naturally born, grafted in, like such as the 144,000 of Revelation, that they have to be of that tribe to be numbered as the 12,000 from that tribe. There's commandments in scripture that are for uh, women and men alike, for priests and for the common man, commandments for children. So we are different. Nobody's saying that, that there isn't a difference here yeah. between who we are, Jew, Gentile. That, that there, there's differences there. But in the eyes of God, man, he loves us as his children, as his people, and we have to always remember that. And so then, if we're to be like the Messiah, be like God, then how are we to look at our own brother? And say, are we supposed to look at him with our own eyes that see contradictions and distinctions and create conflict in our own human brains in this physical world we live in? Or are we going to look with spiritual eyes like the eyes of God and see a brother regardless of their heritage, regardless of their age, regardless of all of these things, and that we are all joined together and equal in the eyes of God? And so many people get caught up on this. It's, it, it, it's sad. I mean, we've been talking about, this goes back to the whole two-house teaching that has been around now now for, for many years, um, to where the distinction between those who are of the nations, are they actual Jews, are they actual Israelites, and a part of Israel, and that we know the Jews are, but then you look at the prophecies, and my father and Eddie Chumney have done these teachings for a very long amount of time, the separation between the two kingdoms. The prophet Hosea went to the, went to the northern kingdom and said, I'm going to scatter you into the nations. You're going to be not my people, and you're not even going to know who you are. And yet then there's talking about a great regathering of the whole house of Israel, when the stick of Ephraim, the stick of Judah, will be one in my hand. That I don't know why I'm talking so fast. I don't have to deliver that line that quickly. But... 
these are great prophecies that we're looking forward to as we're all coming back together and joining together. And we're standing here today, 2,000 years later after the Messiah, and saying, well, who is Israel? Who is a part of, of the Israel, the commonwealth of Israel? Are we part? And we do try to make that distinction. Some people stand up and say, well, we're Ephraimites. We're of the northern kingdom. British Israelism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, whoever, who stand up and want to claim that identity. Yeah. And then you have, but then that, you know, there's conflicts with Judaism as well. It's like, well, we're Jews. We know you're Jews, but you can't prove that you are that. All of that is all, uh, is all conjecture, is all irregardless to the fact that when it comes to Israel and the commonwealth of Israel, that Israel's likened to an olive tree where all the branches are broken naturally and, and they all have to be grafted back in. We all are then equal to the... And then with the adoption of sons, that when if true adoption takes place, biblical, when someone is brought into a family, be it a servant or be it another man from another nation, from another Gentile, they sit at the same table on the same level as a naturally born son of that family and sitting at the master's table. That's how it's biblically supposed to happen. Amen. And that all of those things, that we don't look down with that person, we don't treat them with disdain, and that is what true, being a servant of a house, that's the honor that's bestowed to them, and even a stranger who's adopted in and not naturally born. True biblical adoption, we are all a part of that family and equal if we're doing things yeah. properly. The problem is, is we don't do things properly. We make that distinction and we classify certain people as second-class citizens, as lower than me because I have some heritage that my name's Ephraim Judah. I know I'm Jewish. I know who I'm in. And, and you, you don't, you don't even know your last name. Your last name's Smith and you don't know where you came from. So I wasn't talking to you. Uh, and so then that makes me greater than you. Uh, uh, au contraire. If we're thinking with the mind of Messiah and God and looking and using his eyes to see us, then we stop trying to identify ourselves by what we're not yeah. and stop trying to distinguish ourselves and let the almighty creator of heaven and earth, our authority, give us that identity. When, uh, yeah, when John the Baptist or Yochanan the Mikvah man, if you prefer, <laughs> uh, was preparing the way for, for the Messiah, uh, he gave warning when they came out. He said, don't say to yourselves that you have Abraham as your father. God is able to raise up uh, children to Abraham from these stones. Which is to say, don't think that your lineage or your bloodline is what gives you preference in the eyes of God. Right? It's your faith. Yes. It's your faith. A true Jew is one who is inwardly and of the heart, not outward and of the flesh. If, if, yeah. if, if you have circumcision, but you're lawless, aren't you counted as uncircumcision? And if you're Right, uncircumcised, but but yet you keep the requirements of the law and you have the faith. Aren't you counted as if you were? And uh, paraphrasing perfectly. Yeah, I mean that's that. I mean, and and that's pretty much where it's at. So when we brought Gentiles into the fold, when Cornelius, the the when he he was brought in and and became a, a believer, you know, this is the whole debate about what Acts 10 and Acts 15 are all about when it comes to bringing them yeah. into the fold, and it's like. They become a part of the family. Now we ask them to abstain from this, you know, fornication and lawlessness and strangled blood, kosher things. You know, the heart of, of the law. But then it's like, no. But then they're a part of everything. But God has has what you thought God has made unclean. God has now made clean. And that this is this is the whole plan of God to everyone, Gentile, Jew or Greek to be brought into the family of God, into the chosen people, and to be assigned to those things. And then when you are, and your heritage doesn't matter a thing, because who was it? Uh, uh, Caleb wasn't even naturally born. Yeah. 
yet was uh, adopted a lot of in. I believe Elijah wasn't. Uh, was, wasn't that? Yeah, wasn't national. Yeah. And then they were adopted into the level of being a leader amongst Israel. Yeah. And at that point, adoption does not matter. Your original heritage and your line does not matter. Jew, Greek, Gentile, no matter what. Because if, if lineage matters, then Ishmael and Esau. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what God, God has been, been proving yeah. through his faith and through his covenants with his people, through the patriarchs, for years. That it is not about lineage. It's not about generation. It's not about who came first and who came second. But it's about who is the anointed and chosen of God. Amen. Amen. Awesome. All right, we have another question. This question is from Dominic from Germany. So that's pretty cool. Germany. And the question is this. Nearly three years ago, some person smashed my nose. Not only broke, but really smashed it out of nowhere. I have no witnesses to go to the police. Since then, I can barely breathe through my nose. The bone uh, grew back so thick I can't even fully clean it. So, yeah, he gives nothing about it. His wife even joked about it to me around a year and a half ago. So when I forgive him and show mercy, does that mean God will never give him what he deserves for it because I forgave him? I mean, I can forgive and just forget it, not growing hate and hit him with a car, shoot him, backstab him, knowing God will make justice when the time has come and he will receive punishment for it. But will it be on his bill on the day of judgment? Or will me forgiving him mean that he gets away with it? Like I said, I have really decreased life quality uh, for nearly three years now and don't know if it's ever going to be fixed. Wow. Well, this certainly, um, I mean, this is a pretty broad subject when it comes to the subject of forgiveness for, uh, I believe that he has been wronged, and then it's a matter of, you know, where's the justice? Where's the justice for uh, what that person did to me? Um, and he's saying there, it's like, Lord, make me the vessel of justice and allow me to hit him with a car. No, it's like, well, I don't think so when it, when it comes to that. Now, we do have the, um, the, the, the question, or when we're talking about judging someone, giving forgiveness, and uh, there's the line that goes, uh, uh, how often, Lord, should my brother sin against me and repent to me and I still be expected to forgive him? Minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, release him. In your releasing, you have released yourself. The Lord is the judge, not you. Judge not, lest you be judged. And so when it comes to forgiveness, this is a very hard thing for a lot of people. There's a lot of people that live with bitterness, yeah. unforgiveness. Uh, children grow up in families, struggling with you know, their parents and what they did to them and, and the, the lifestyle they raised them up. And then they sit here and then they have a diminished quality of life, if you will, mm-hmm. to compare what he said as well, based on you know, the upbringing that one had. And so there's people that grow with a great deal of unforgiveness to a parent or to somebody else who sinned them, wronged them, um, much worse than breaking somebody's nose. So they have to always go through that recovery, that, that, that understanding, why did this happen to me, and what am I supposed to do, how do I release this, truly, how do I let this go, because it continues to weigh on me, and, my, and, and I don't know if I can bring myself to forgive the person because of what they did. And so, in, in this case here, and the, the phrase I've always heard it said uh, before, actually, I haven't always heard it said, I heard it not that long ago, but it's an amazing thing, is that you don't give forgiveness to somebody because they deserve forgiveness. Yeah. You give forgiveness to them because you deserve to live in peace. 
Amen. The forgiveness yeah. is for you to move forward. The, 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 you are not his judge. You're not responsible for bringing justice to him. But it is you, day by day, release him so that you can move forward with peace. Now, that's easier said than done for some. With the, with the struggles that some people have. I mean, I'm sure you've met people and have that experience and you yeah. see the unforgiveness just welling up in some people. Yeah. No one said following Yeshua is easy, first of all. It's tough. And I would submit that, Dominic, you know, you're, you're, you haven't forgiven them. It, you, you can't say, I've, I've forgiven them, but are they going to pay the penalty or not? By definition, forgiveness is they're not getting what they deserve. Uh, the Bible often uses the analogy of debts, financial debts. When it comes to the topic of forgiveness, it's used in parables and um, the Lord's Prayer, things like that. Uh, if, if Ephraim owed me, you know, $80,000, and I forgave him his debt, but then I asked, but is he still going to pay me the $80,000 or not? I haven't forgiven him his debt. That's the, 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 the nature of forgiveness is yes, he's not paying the price that he deserves. And then if we take that with us and God, I would sure hope that's the definition. <laughs> right? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think that, oh, God has forgiven me, but am I still going to pay the penalties for my sins? No, by, by definition, that's, I mean, that's the center of the hope. Is God has forgiven me. And that's, that's, a, that's a release. Now, obviously, there are still consequences in this world. Certain behaviors have certain physical consequences. Um, you know, you, you murder someone, uh, you can be forgiven by that person, you're probably still going to end up going to jail. Um, you, you know, you, you did this, you did that. There are, there are certain irreversible consequences. But yeah, forgiveness... Uh, keeps no records of wrong. It, it, it doesn't expect that payment to be right. uh, made later on. That's the nature of it. And if we're to be like the Lord, be like the Messiah, shouldn't we forgive others as he has forgiven us? Yeah. That if we want to hold that against our brother, our father, our uncle, or whoever wronged us, we want to hold that against them, yeah. then are we then giving God license to continue to hold all of our wrongs against us? Precisely. God forbid. It's no. It, it, we, we, it, it's not easy. It's not easy because I, I've met so many people. Um, Chris and I both work with youth to where we, we run into this thing all the time where you know people are struggling with overcoming um, them being wronged. And it's like, and, and this is, uh, you got to take them right back to the Lord's Prayer where it's all like, Lord, for, forgive us or forgive our debtors and our trespassers as you've forgiven us yeah. and our trespassers and you've got to take them right back to the Lord's Prayer and say, you know, you, you've got to you've got to lay this down. You've got to hand it over to the Lord and, and, and give it to Him because He's He's forgiven us and but it's it's not hard and sometimes it takes it takes a uh, community, it takes a multitude of counselors, it takes uh, fervent prayer and effort to overcome that forgiveness. Um and so, I mean, I know personally people that I've interacted with over a number of years that continue to, you know, they say, well, you know, I've moved past it, I've forgiven them. And then their behavior or their actions still show, you know, that person that it's like, I've forgiven them. But the next time they come walking in the door, they get the face and they're like, they have, they've not, yeah. they've not forgiven them because they, they just, the second you see them, the second you hear their name, you get a little kind of snarl on your face kind of thing. And you're like... There's not the, the forgiveness is not there. This is still something that, that lingers. And it's like, I think this also goes back to things that I've shared over time, and I'm still developing exactly how this all relates to us. 
But there is a spirit of unforgiveness. A spirit of unforgiveness that takes the place in our hearts and minds of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us and guides us in our emotions and causes us to the remembrances of the words of Yeshua. But if you have a spirit of unforgiveness, then what that is doing is it's causing you to the remembrances of those that wronged you. Mm. You can't do both at the same time. Mm. There's a spirit there that is causing your mind and your thoughts to distract you from the Holy Spirit and the way that he would lead you. Yeah. And so it's not easy to overcome, but man, if you want to live in peace, if you want to be led by the Holy Spirit and not the spirit of unforgiveness, then you forgive your de- your debtors and those that have trespassed yeah. against you. I also have a little note here that, that somebody else gave another analogy here, um, is that you know it's not that you let them off the hook when you forgive them, because they're still on the hook and they're still, it's like a fish, still wailing on the hook. The difference is, is you give the hook to God. Let God deal with them. They're not off the hook. They're not off the hook for the justice that's due, but it's not your burden to bear to ensure justice is done. Yeah. Or, and and if, if God didn't punish them, would you be upset? You know, I'm reminded of Jonah and the Ninevites, who, who definitely deserved every ounce of judgment that could have possibly come from God. Which you have a great teaching on, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. I've heard you teach. Um, but but they des- if anyone deserves the judgment of God, the ancient Assyrians deserve the judgment of God. Mm-hmm. And they repent, and God chooses to forgive. And Jonah is so angry at God for choosing to have mercy. And you can argue rightfully so. You can argue he had motivations. You can argue it made sense for him to be upset. But the fact of the matter is, you know, if if God chooses to forgive someone, will we be angry at God's mercy and forgiveness? Now, obviously in the scripture, there is a future day of judgment. Judgments will be had. When someone goes around sinning and is unrepentant and is committing evil, they will pay the price. There are consequences for your actions, all those things. You know, realize, yes, God is is a just judge and knows what he's doing but should someone be repentant and turn to God if he chose to erase the record of wrong and have mercy would we be mad and do we deserve to be mad knowing that he has ultimately wiped that clean for us as well right it you know, it's comes, tough. It's hard. It still comes full circle because our nature wants to wants to then yeah. be mad at God because we didn't see the justice that we thought it was going to be. Yeah. It's the same mistake you make if you're trying to re- interpret prophecy before it happens. You're trying to anticipate. Well, this is what the judgment should be. So I'm not expecting that prophecy to be fulfilled until I see it done this way. Yeah. I'm not expecting him to be judged and justice to be served until I see it done this way. Yeah. And again goes back to what we've been saying this whole time is let God do God's job and you do your job and respect the authority of those that are above you and before you that it's their job to do these things it's your job to then submit to that authority until you've been exalted to the ability of until you've been hired as the judge jury and executioner you're not allowed to do that job now sometimes you'll be hired to be a judge and to uh uh speak on these matters and, and make a judgment and a judgment call and maybe been called to jury duty it's now been bestowed on you you're one of 12 to make that call and that decision and then if you work in the corrections department and you're a part of the executioner and that that's your that's then your job but until you're been bestowed upon that responsibility and that authority it's not in your hands it's in the lord's hands so you hand, give it over to the lord 
Give it over to the Lord to be the uh, the one who makes the judgment, who gives the uh, the punishment. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Here's the other thing too: is sometimes that punishment will happen at a time you don't think it's fast enough. It's like Lord, He deserves to be punished, and you should have done it already. And it's like if you truly put it in the Lord's hands, well. Again, if it doesn't happen until the day of judgment, well, then, then you're going to be spending your life, you know, moaning and complaining and being bitter that the judgment hasn't come yet. Yeah. And yet happens is when you lose that patience, well, then you're not walking with that particular fruit of the Spirit. And it's that yeah. in, same impatience that leads you to go after other things and not follow after the Lord you're supposed to be following in the same way the children of Israel were impatient. They thought Moses should have come down the mountain by now. So then let's make a golden calf because he's not, he's not working in, in the time frame that we think he should be working. Yeah. Oops. So th- this, this continues to go yeah. back to, man, give it over to the Lord. Yeah. G- give it to him. He, yeah. he will do these things. And be released yourself. Yeah. Release. Because if, if you're so still, you're released. If you're still expecting something to happen, a price to be paid, a penalty, a judgment, that by definition is not forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You have not forgiven yeah. at that point. So... All right. I mean, I, I think. I mean, we could continue to try and come up with other examples and be encouragement of forgiveness, and, and you know, could develop into a whole entire teaching when he said, about. Pick up your cross and follow me. He wasn't joking. Hey, p- picking up the cross it didn't say that was easy. Yeah. Didn't say it was light or anything like that. All right. Last question. All right. From Patrick. And this is it. My question is: Are the locations of the Israelites' journey? Uh, the various journeys in the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 33, in chronological order? Well, um, I've done a little bit of study on the Numbers, Numbers chapter 33. It's my birth portion. And there's 42 places listed there. And um, in that listing, as far as anything that we can determine of that listing from Numbers chapter 33, that, yes, is in order. That, that When it says that location happened before this location, there is a chronological progression from leaving Egypt to entering the promised land, all 42 of those journeys. The, the fascinating thing about that is the parallels that those journeys draw to the spiritual walk of a believer, also what we believe the tribulation saints will experience during the great tribulation. And so we, it appears that there is a chronological progression of what the children of Israel experienced from leaving Egypt, leaving Ramses, leaving sin, leaving evil, then going into Sukkot, where you realize you're a temporary dwelling, and this is who you are as a person. That this life is not is a mortal life; it's not immortal. And yet we're going on a journey. We wish to get to the promised land, all the way to location number 42, Beth Yeshimoth, which is the house of judgment. So we start at the very beginning, leaving sin and evil, and get to judgment. And everything in between is your story and your journey that you walk through. Just as the children of Israel walked through and had their own journey to the promised land. The fascinating thing is there's other aspects of the journeys in, um, in the Exodus and other locations where the Israelites went that aren't mentioned in Numbers chapter 33. Why? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't that be a comprehensive, exhaustive list of everywhere they went and everything that happened? Well, what that tells me is that that listing in Numbers chapter 33 is very specific, too, that there is a teaching and a lesson that goes through those things and, and teaches us and encourages us. And so I've, I've done that, some of that study, other people have as well, of the, the progression of the children of Israel. Because 
For those of us who are Messianic, Hebrew roots, we do a lot of studying of the Torah and the experiences of the children of Israel that happened to them in the wilderness from leaving Egypt to being saved by grace through faith and going through the waters of mikvah, so to speak, of the Red Sea, being born again, made new creatures, made into a kingdom of priests, and yet then they sin, they fall, they, mis- they make mistakes, they grumble, yet God still walks with them, still leads them with a pillar of cloud by day, fire by night, and leads them through past trials, tribulations, um, plagues, kingdoms that seek their life and wish to wipe them off the map all the way through walking all the way into the point to where they can enter into that promised land the ultimate goal a land flowing with milk and honey with all the blessings that god has allowed for us and i'm describing the children of israel however metaphorically i'm describing the walk of a person in their life as they go and they are leading to the lord and whatever the journey of the children of israel was it's not going to be exact to what your journey is as a spiritual believer. It's not going to be exactly the same because you're going to stumble and complain and grumble at times different than, say, when the children of Israel did. Uh, through your walk, you might do it early on. You might do it more later. Um, and so everybody's journey is unique to themselves, children of Israel being the same. But what it is when it comes to growing with the community of brethren, with um, uh, working with one another, your relationships is what builds you up. Iron sharpens iron. And so when you have a shared testimony with another brother and say, hey, I was there, I made these mistakes. And then you're like, oh, well, well, what did you do? And it's like, well, I did this, 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 and this. And you're like, okay, that shared testimony can help to lead you down the path. In the same way that you as a spiritual believer have a shared testimony with the life of the children of Israel. Being forgiven, being saved from the slavery of sin and death and destruction, and then being led on a journey that's not a short journey. We're not going by way of the Philistines. You're not just going to get zapped up out of here and suddenly you're holy. You're in the promised land and amen and amen. I'm sure glad I chose God at that point in time. And by the way, it happened so fast. I don't know why anybody else isn't doing this. Well, it's because it doesn't happen that way that people sometimes... They question the journey they're on. They were already saved, and then they're like, you know what? Is this promised land even a real thing? Is that pillar of cloud by day, fire by night, is that really of God leading me follow, that, that I'm supposed to be following? And people walk away from the faith. People fall away from following those the, the things just like the children of Israel did. Yeah. And if you don't do it, then sometimes God will find somebody else will do it. Maybe your children will do it. If you're not willing to follow the Lord and, and go on that spiritual journey with God and share that same testimony, well, if you, then you might be more alike than the children of Israel than you would care to be, and your children will be the ones that receive those promises and the inheritance and the blessings of the Lord. So everyone's journey is different. Chronologically, we can try, and, we can try to see, hey, where are we? Are we in, um, uh, in my spiritual walk? Am I kind of more like the Israelites were you know, at the... Uh, at the place of Mara, where they were bitter, they were angry, and they were thirsty, and they didn't feel like the Lord was with them and meeting their needs. I can think of a few people that that's about where they are on their spiritual journey. Or they at a place of um, one of the other locations where there was a great deal of blessing, where there was springs of water and food, and, and the place when the manna was provided for the children of Israel. And Rephidim, when the, when the water came from a rock, and are you at a place in, in your walk and journey when you just see, man, the Lord's meeting my needs right now. I was thirsty, and the Lord just provided what I needed in my life at that time. And so some people are at that place in the spiritual journey. Some place, people are there. And the thing is, 
some people may take a step back. Might, some people might go further back, just like you were talking about that path, and then it's like it's, it's not a matter of what, uh, where you are on the path. It's about which direction you're going. And so there could be people, I imagine, wandering in the wilderness that sometimes the children of Israel went backwards. They went, thought they were going this place, and then they ended up being drawn and pulled backwards because they weren't ready to go. People do that all the time as well. They move backwards in their faith. Sometimes they return back to the same place where they were, and they just think, man, I'm just going in circles around this mountain, and I keep coming back to the same place, and it doesn't seem like anything's changing. Well, at some point in time, you, things, the, the Lord is still working. The pillar is still there. And sometimes you don't turn north and start heading toward the promised land until... Aaron, the high priest, maybe he, he ha, it's time for him to go, go be with the Lord, go up onto the mountain and go be with the Lord. And then after that happens, then it's time to move forward. And some people think that life just is always the same, but then sometimes some catalyst happens. Maybe you lose the, a parent or something. You lose somebody who's been with you, leading you this whole time, and then they pass away or they go on or they move to another location. They don't have to die, but they have to, but, but something changes suddenly, catalyst happens and then you go in a different direction the journeys of the children of israel they are our ancestors whether you're native born or adopted in the rights and privileges and blessings that they have i'm not giving you a chance to speak i'm just keep going oh no i'm loving all the rights and privileges that they have belong to you as well and you are their children so you can choose to make the same mistakes do the exact same thing or you can choose to learn from their mistakes, continue to move forward, progress. Keep your eye on the on the, the pillar, that which is leading you, the doors that are open, the places to go. Look for the times that blessing is going to be poured out, but know and understand there's going to be times of bitterness. God's going to test you with your needs. You're going to be hungry. You're going to be thirsty. Are you going to grow bitter that God hasn't provided those things? Are you going to go bitter or grow bitter that justice hasn't been served by that brother that just wronged you at that point you're still stuck in one of those places and that if the pillar of cloud is ready to move on and you're still stuck in that place then you're not following the lord you're not going down that path Mm. of righteousness that narrow path of righteousness so again with all things with scripture take them into account yes the context of where they were and, and who they were and what they did at the same time there are so many things to take application in our own personal lives, in our own spiritual walks, whether it be as forgiving a brother who's wronged you or whether it be um, walking in righteousness. Somebody has prophesied something over you and, and you don't know what the interpretation is. Be still and know that he is the Lord and allow for his interpretation to come and allow for him to number you and to identify you with who you are, what tribe you belong to, um, and all of those things. We're all together. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but all must give an account. And so, But we pray with shared testimonies, good relationships, sound teaching, doctrine, answering personal questions, that we can encourage others. We can, we, we can save a life. We can turn somebody back on the path. And this is the nature of ministry, as it is, to speak to, into the lives of others, encourage one another, help them to, with their forgiveness, help them with all the questions they might have, and um, continue to move forward, looking forward to the kingdom. And may we be found in the Lamb's Book of Life. Amen. Amen. I'm going to offer a prayer, and we'll uh, close sure. this out. That sounds great. Father, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the questions that were submitted, and uh, we thank you that we can dig into your word, 
to seek you, to seek your truth, and that you lead us and guide us in that truth. We love you. We bless you. In Yeshua's name, amen. Amen. Shalom.